Life of Jesus, a devotional study by Melva Perkis. Book 4, Chapter 18, The Storm on the Lake The long day was at last drawing to its close. Jesus must have been near the end of his physical resources. He had returned from the strain of an exacting tour through the cities and villages of Galilee to meet the impact of Capernaum with its crowds, its needs, its hostilities. The whole history of his ministry had been enacted in those few hours since the dawn. He had healed the blind and dumb demoniac, engaged in bitter controversy with the scribes from Jerusalem, taught the multitudes and privately instructed the disciples. Now looking out across the lake in the stillness that pervaded the air as the familiar beauty of day quickly darkened in the mantle of the night, Jesus must have felt an overwhelming desire for rest and seclusion. Matthew tells us that, seeing the great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. And Mark adds that the disciples took him even as he was in the ship. As is so often the case in the Gospels, these short comments are full of meaning. They showed both the need of Jesus to leave the crowds and rest, and the suddenness of his decision to get away immediately. The departure was delayed by a scribe who came to him full of enthusiasm. Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. These were strange words on the lips of a scribe, but we have no reason to doubt their sincerity. He had probably listened with the multitudes on the seashore earlier in the day, and had not unnaturally been emotionally affected by both the words and the person of the Lord. In a moment of sudden resolution, he had decided to throw everything overboard and join the band of disciples. Scribes were unusual converts to the cause of Christ. Emotion is a dangerous condition in which to make lifelong decisions. Jesus put him to the test. Did he know the path the Master was treading? The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. The urgent need for rest which Jesus felt as he said these poignant words would probably be hidden from the scribe by the self-control which completely mastered his physical condition. But we can see it and feel the pathos the more. That was the road he trod. The fox, pursued by relentless enemies, can find its secluded hole deep in the ground where it can safely rest. The bird of the air, dropping from the strain of its winged pilgrimage, can come to rest on some leafy branch. But the Son of Man, because he is the Son of Man, has not where to lay his head. No place to call his home, no retreat from the urgent demands of his mission. 
Within the hour that tired head will rest on the steerman's cushion in the fishing boat, only to be disturbed again by the disciples' need and the surging tumult. It will not find a true rest until it bows slowly to his breast outside the city wall. Will you follow him now, O scribe, now that you know the road he takes? Or growing pale before the price he asks, and seeing the truth of it in his eyes rather than on his lips, will you return to the security of your sheltered life? It was at this time, too, that one of the disciples had apparently received news that his father had died, and asked Jesus for permission to attend to his burial. The uncompromising answer from the one who ministered so tenderly to sorrow seems hard, perhaps even cruel. Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. And Luke adds, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. It is only after careful thought that we see in it the characteristic love of the Saviour of the world. First of all, this man was already a follower of Jesus, not committed to the complete service of apostleship, but certainly to the obligations of discipleship. Then we notice that by the very nature of his answer, Jesus has justified his refusal by changing the present circumstances into a spiritual metaphor. The world is a world of perishing mortality, of dead men. Jesus had come to bring life. By associating himself with Jesus, the disciple had left the congregation of the dead, but if he withdrew from Jesus, he would enter it once more and would be in danger of attending his own burial as well as his father's. A great surgeon, spending all his time at the hospital saving men from death, does not pause in his labours to bury the dead. Nor does the medical student leave the master's side for that or any other purpose. So it was with the disciple of the great physician. By learning from his Lord, and then in his turn going out to preach the kingdom of God, he was performing a work of love and service which made his present request paltry and insignificant. In the following darkness Jesus stepped into the boat followed by his disciples, whom he instructed to steer to the farther shore. At last exhaustion, defied for so long, exacted its price. He lay down and slept. The sudden storms which develop on the Sea of Galilee when the wind whistles down the narrow gorges from the northern mountains were well known to the fishermen disciples. Such a tempest swept down upon them now. It quickly developed into a fury they had never experienced before. The wind lashed the sea into a seething cauldron. It roared through the rigging. It swept up the boat in its rage. The mountainous waves lashed the helpless craft, and the seas poured in unchecked. Soon it began to founder. All the experience of the hardened fishermen was unavailing. 
Their frenzied shouts were torn from their throats and lost in the surging darkness. Their faces grew pale with fear, and still, completely spent, their master slept. All their efforts useless, they suddenly realised their Lord was in the boat. Master, master, we perish! Jesus awoke. In a moment he understood. But before he turned to the wind and the waves, he brought peace to their frenzied hearts. Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then to the wind he cried, Peace! And to the waves, Be still! And there was a great calm. The disciples, shaken and ashamed, marvelled, saying, What manner of man is this? How many are the lessons borne to us on the winds of that storm? The passage over the sea to the distant shore is the disciples' journey through life. The frail boat that undertakes the crossing is the human heart. But Christ is there. His protecting influence will remain, however sudden the storms, however dark the night but he will not be awakened by the fury of the gale, nor the shudder of the boat. Only the voice of the disciples will rouse him. Then he will bring peace into the heart and save the life from disaster. The memory of the disciples working feverishly to save themselves with fear in their eyes and despair in their hearts should be a warning of our own insufficiency and the sublime picture of the Master sleeping peacefully amid the raging storm should be an abiding incentive to a living faith in him who stilleth the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, and the tumult of the peoples. Chapter 19 Among the Gergesenes Gergesa was a town of some importance on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, one of the ten cities of the Decapolis, a region of Greek culture. It was ruled over by Herod Philip. Today its ruins and its tombs can still be seen by the side of the solitary cliffs that rise precipitously out of the water. It was here that Jesus stepped ashore in the early dawn that followed a momentous night. The disciples would still feel shaken and full of wonder. Could they ever forget the transformation they had seen? One moment they had looked upon the intensely human picture of their Lord asleep, the next they had gazed at a figure they did not recognise, who commanded the elements with majestic authority. Now they were about to witness a fresh unveiling of his power. Among the tombs of Gergesa there lurked a raging madman, more terrifying in aspect than they had ever encountered. Matthew speaks of two demoniacs, Mark and Luke of only one. It would appear that the man who described himself as Legion was by far the most formidable and therefore the one upon whom Jesus concentrated his attention whilst, of course, healing both. For the purpose of narrative, 
we will follow Mark and Luke and speak only of one. The composite picture presented by the evangelists is a fearful one. We see an unclothed maniac roaming the mountains and the tombs, a grotesque monster who could not be bound even with chains, bleeding from the gashes of self-imposed wounds, exceedingly fierce. He prevented anyone from venturing near him. Seeing the boat pulled up to the shore and its occupants making their way towards the tombs, the demented man dashed down upon them. But suddenly... While he was still some distance away, he stopped. Something in his disordered mind felt a power greater than his madness. He ran forward, only to fall at Christ's feet. Jesus immediately began the heavy task of mastering his will and overcoming his hallucinations. He commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man, but it brought a friended outburst. What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God Most High? How was it possible that this poor madman could have any knowledge of the Christ? We cannot tell. But we do know that Jesus always demanded a responsive faith in those he cured. Unbelief had prevented his beneficent work in Nazareth. Is it not possible that Jesus impressed his identity upon the tortured mind and thus gave the man the opportunity of making that contribution of faith necessary to his own healing. The knowledge that he was the Son of God was only the first stage in the cure. It evoked a greater tumult in him. I beseech thee, torment me not! Steadily Jesus persevered. Still preparing him for the moment of response, he asked, What is thy name? The simple question broke through his defences. He had believed with all those of his day that if a man became demented, it was because evil demons had taken possession of him. My name is Legion, he cried pathetically, for we are many. He pleaded that Jesus would not send them away into the country. Then looking across at the cliff-top, the man saw a great herd of swine feeding. Send us into the swine that we may enter into them. Here was the opportunity which would give the man ground for faith. If he had visible evidence that the demons had departed from him, he would believe. Watching with pitiful intensity, he saw a sudden movement among the animals. It spread rapidly. Several rushed headlong down the slope. They were followed by the others in a mad stampede. Unable to check the gathering impetus, they plunged into the sea. The man looked at Jesus for the first time with faith in his eyes, and Jesus healed him. There was a sad sequel to this moving incident. The keepers of the swine hurried to the city to tell their story. The whole population came out towards the tombs they had deserted so long. There the people found the man who so recently had been a raging maniac sitting quietly at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And Mark says, they were afraid. 
that reaction was altogether natural. Fear can be a low form of faith. But the tragedy came when they learned what had become of their swine. They began to plead with Jesus to depart from their coasts. They did not seek his identity. They brought him no sick. They offered him no hospitality. They besought him to leave them. And Luke says, quite simply, he went up into the ship and returned back again. But for a brief moment the sun broke through. The collective prayer of the inhabitants was followed by a single prayer. The man who had called himself Legion prayed for discipleship. He besought Jesus that he would allow him to come back with him. Granting the prayer of the multitude, Jesus left them to their fate. Refusing the desire of the man he had healed to stay with him, he conferred upon him the obligations of discipleship. And Luke tells us, he went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done for him. Some controversy has surrounded this miracle that stands so uniquely in the midst of the Galilean ministry. This can, however, be dismissed. We can turn to the simple record and learn with gratitude that the miracle itself is its own justification. He who commands the wind and the sea has the same wonderful power over the minds and hearts of men. No obstacle of mind or spirit is too great for him to transform when faith is born. The great question is not, why did the Lord permit the destruction of two thousand swine? That question supplies its own answer. The life of the man was of more value than many swine, more than ever so, because that man was destined to be not only a disciple, but in measure an apostle also. For was he not a forerunner of the great apostle to the Gentiles, telling the men of Decapolis the great tidings of what Jesus had done, evoking their wonder? No. The important question is, why did the Gergesenes beseech him to depart? It is important because these lakeside inhabitants have a large posterity descending to our day and capable of infiltrating even into the houses of those who profess allegiance to him. The keeping of swine is no sinful occupation. The cares and responsibilities of this busy life, the sustenance of our families, the modest target our ambition sets are all legitimate. But when Christ makes a demand endangering them, there lies the challenge. It is then that each has to answer for himself. Do I want to see the little boat sailing back across the lake? Do I want to be left with my swine?